I am a Buddhist, but I was raised as a Baptist. And so I know all these Bible verses. There's an interesting thing in the New Testament where Christ talks about why he speaks in parables. And it is not so that the greatest number of people can understand these stories. It's in fact the opposite. He says, it's so that I can hide the mysteries and the wrong ones won't be saved. Welcome back. My guest is Kirk Lynn. He is a playwright, a novelist, a screenwriter, an artistic director at Rudmex Theater Collective. And I say an artistic director because the Rudmex Theater Collective has several. He has written and adapted 20 plays. That's right, 20 plays. And since that bio was written, maybe it's even more than that, but at least 20 plays, including Lipstick Traces, The Method Gun, and Not Every Mountain. He's been commissioned and or appeared in Fusebox Festival, which is a big deal festival, the University of Texas Theater and Dance, UT Theater and Dance, and the Texas Performing Arts, where he was part of the Leonard Bernstein Centenary Celebration, which I think is awesome because Leonard Bernstein, as a New Yorker and as a Jew and as a composer, is my boy. Also, the guy who wrote West Side Story, which, as a Puerto Rican Jew New Yorker, he's doubly my boy. <laughs> he's got it all. Yeah, exactly. So his debut novel is Rules for Werewolves, which came out in 2015. That's from Melville House Books. And he is an associate professor at UT Austin in the art and craft of playwriting. The book that you chose is Games, Agency as Art. And this is a 2020 release from Oxford Press. And I'm going to go with C. Ty Wynn. It is an academic book. It is a philosophical book. It is actually different than any of the other books we've covered for this podcast. It was fascinating. It was challenging. I have a lot of questions about it. And as a professor who teaches a class about games, you'll probably be able to illuminate a lot of what I frankly didn't really understand about this book. So Kirk, welcome to the show. And I'll start with our first question, which is why did you pick this book? I think almost in line with the spirit of the book that I picked when you invited me so graciously, I thought, well, how can I use this to further a sort of ends that I have? And one of my ends is there's a list of books I need to read. I'll put one of these up there that seems fun. It turns out it's much more philosophical and much more sort of academic than I imagined. It does in some ways function as just a catalog of cool games one might want to play as he describes different games. That was probably the most fun part about the book. And so I thought, oh, well, I need to read this book. I'll invite Lucas to read it with me and then we can enjoy it together. It turns out that, I mean, maybe we probably should have been texting throughout so we could have just suffered together. Like if you have to do like a really hard, like you're training for a marathon or maybe even learning a hard piece of music or something like it helps to have a buddy suffering with you. We are like, Oh yeah, that part was rough. So maybe we can just do that now. It was a little bit dry. Well, Kirk, we don't know each other. We've never met before this show. So I assume that people love the books that they chose or that they chose them for aesthetic reasons. Most of the time, it would make sense. Wouldn't it? <laughs> well, I was super nervous going into the show because I was like, man, I got some things to say about this book that are maybe not super favorable. And I hope this isn't his favorite book, but let me start with, the things I like about it, which I do think that the arguments in it are persuasive and compelling and interesting and necessary and for the most part, fantastic. They're just presented. It reads like a grad school paper to me. And that's what makes it difficult to read. It's just not presented. You know, I do read a lot of philosophy and I realize that reading Hofstetter or Daniel Dennett or Richard Dawkins, these are popularizations. They're writing them for a mass audience. This is written for people who he's going to defend a dissertation to. Exactly. Yeah. And he's specifically taking issue with other philosophers that I assume we haven't read very deeply in. And so it's a very inside baseball kind of game that's going on where it's like, I don't actually care what so-and-so said, and I don't need you to defend your argument against, I'm more interested in hearing you describe games. 
I mean, I would say at the center of it, I feel like there's a little tool I think I'll carry around with me. This notion that I think the most radical part of the book is reframing games as a recording device for agency in the same way that paintings record images and uh, songs record sounds that what games record and make shareable like mixtapes that you make in middle school are experiences of agency. And I thought I've never heard, I've read a lot of books about play and I've never heard that described that way. And so I did have a little brain rainbow at that moment and then 200 more pages. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree with you that I feel like the thesis of this book could really be summed up pretty quickly, which is that a game controls the player's agency within the context of the game is itself a work of art and is something that the game is able to preserve. He has a lot of evidence for this and there's a lot of ideas around this. I think the title is almost the thesis, Games, Agency as Art. But let's just back up a little bit and just talk about your relationship to play and your relationship to games. Do you play a lot of games? Uh, I think I play a lot. I mean, one of my critiques of the book would be that he seems to conflate games and play in a way sometimes it was frustrating to me as a reader. I play a fair amount of chess. I watch a lot of sports. I play a little Scrabble with my wife. I will play games with the kids. In fact, tonight we have a date with the kids tonight. They have a new game in which you're a moving company and you have to move people out of a house into a moving van and you have to work together on the Nintendo. And we're all very excited to try this game out. But that said, I don't actually play a lot of games. Like I don't have a vast collection of board games. I'm interested in the concept. But I think the real distinction is that I bet anybody who knew me well thinks of me as a playful, I like to joke, I like to tease. I think I learned, my dad's a barber. And so I think his job is both to cut hair and to be an artist and to make people look and feel beautiful. But also he has this kind of side job, which is to tease people and to make them happy and to get them laughing and to tell jokes. And my dad's that way a lot. And I think I learned this kind of way of showing affection. It's really playful and really teasing. And I like to get people laughing. If I'm in a boring faculty meeting, I both am serious and can get work done. And I like to find the best joke to crack at the right moment, keep things buoyant. So yeah, my interest is more in the interest in play and in how to invite this spirit into my life more often. And I'm a playwright, which I mean, the art form is called play for a reason. I think it has a grand ridiculousness at the heart of it where you can see that that person's not George Washington. It wouldn't make any sense for that to be George Washington, but everybody's doing this weird thing where we're pretending like, well, he can act like George Washington and we'll take him seriously for a while. Yeah. What do you think is the agency that is happening in a theater? Because everybody is engaged in some kind of game that we all understand the rules of. Yeah. When theater works well, I think there's a little bit of, I would almost say like jumping back and forth of like disappearance of self and then remembering of self, like, when theater works well, you sort of disappear into the event and the performance, it becomes your imagination for you. And then you keep having little moments of, I would do that differently, or I hope this happens. I hope they kiss. I hope they stab that bad guy. I hope that beautiful blue rain covers everything. I don't know how abstract a piece you're imagining in your heart, but your identity sort of almost like a ocean rises and falls, like has a sort of tide that rises and falls with the artwork that's happening. I mean, I think in a lot of ways, it's very similar to music. It's time-based, it's durational, it's live. So you, I think when it works well, you feel alive and you feel a community. And some of my pleasure in it is that it's also high risk that when it's bad, you are in real time watching people embarrass themselves, feeling embarrassed, feeling ashamed. To watch bad theater 
I don't know if music is quite like this because music has a kind of abstraction that you can sort of distance yourself often. But when theater is going bad, it hurts or it hurts me. I don't want to see a really bad play and I don't want to make a really bad play. And I like that. That's a real possibility. I think that probably the most powerful idea of this book for me or the newest idea and one that you brought up, I think it was the first thing you said was striving play. Can you just talk to us a little bit about what that is? Yeah, Wynn has a notion that there's a particular kind of play. So there's like achievement play, which is just, I want to win. I play to win. I collect my ribbons. I collect my score and I ever achieve for a higher score. But striving play is a special kind of mindset in which you adopt temporary ends in order to enjoy the means. Actually, one of the best examples I think he has is this notion of icebreakers, that I'm going to get a bunch of people together who don't know each other. And in order to get people feeling sort of looser with each other, I'm going to propose a game of charades or something. And then we're all going to be interested in charades. We want our team to win. But in fact, what we really want to have happen is we want to feel more comfortable with one another. We want to laugh a little bit. And we want to start to feel more relaxed and more part of a community. And that, you know, if you have the right mindset that you can be a striving player where the moment the game's over, you don't feel any anger or animosity that you lost at the other team. You just feel this like, oh, the means seem to work. And then he expands it out to a larger, like, he never directly says it, but he's sort of advocating that being a striving player is probably good for you. And he talks about things which I would argue are not games, but like yoga and rock climbing. There's no way to win yoga. There's no way to really win. I mean, there are rock climbing competitions. What you're trying to do is invite your brain into a place where you're like, well, I'm making my body more limber. I'm making my body more strong. That's funny. I had, I think, the exact opposite reaction to that part. And maybe it's because we might be fundamentally different people in that I am a hyper competitive person, as anyone who knows me will attest. And really, until I read this book, I wasn't able to identify what the problem was with this hyper competitiveness. And so I got really into cycling a couple of years ago and, and I did like crazy, crazy cycling. And I've realized now that the goal in doing cycling is for me to stay in shape, but I lost that goal. And the goal became to like win or place or complete these races, which is hollow and painful and way too time consuming for a person with two kids. And I've since adjusted that goal where the goal is to have fun and stay in shape. And if like this guy beats me up this hill, that's fine. Maybe I'll beat him next time. It doesn't matter. But what matters is that I feel good afterwards. So I had to adopt this idea of striving play before I knew what it was in order to make this a healthy part of my life. Because playing to win all the time is not even play, really. The other part of the book that I found really useful, I never put language on before, is that while I love playfulness, I am very suspicious of this sort of gamification, the idea that like you should wear a Fitbit or a lot of social media where you can track the number of likes you get on stuff. If you gamify things, you can have this sort of value shift where it's like my goal was to stay in shape and to have fun and feel engaged in the world and feel in my body. And then suddenly I started only valuing winning or doing things I'd never done before. And I lost touch with it. I got out of balance maybe with my life and my kids and my time. I got out of balance with my brain. I can't even enjoy this because I play second to that jerk face. I think young artists can sometimes feel this very exact thing where what kind of writer are you? Are you a writer who wants to win the awards and who can't stand it if other people win? Or are you just trying to express a kind of newness of you in a way that nobody else can? Then you can still want to win some awards, but you don't feel that sense of like, well, that award was for that person because they did something and actually has almost nothing to do with my writing. My writing comes out of me and sounds like this. I think students, a lot of times, I worry sometimes that some of them get lost in this like 
competitions and awards and retreats and I don't know. I'm not super excited about most of those opportunities because I think it has that value shift thing. You know, I've never really put language on that either, but it's the same thing in composers. I think it might have been Leonard Bernstein who said of composing competitions that competitions are for horses. Oh, that's so great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's no way to win composing. There's no way to win art. You either connect with your audience or you don't. The prizes are secondary. And, you know, I say this as I've snatched a few brass rings in my career, but none of them were I'm aiming at winning this prize and then I win it. It's I did work that I thought was good and I got some recognition for it. Yeah, there's this way that people like to put simple handles on stuff rather than thinking about the complexity. I mean, which is the argument that goals of games sort of erase nuance so that you end up just trying to get a step count and not trying to just be healthy. And it both works for our brain, but you have to be suspicious and look out for it. Yeah, it seems like it's sort of temporary. I mean, games are essentially frivolity. This was one of my big beats with this book. I think one of the things he keeps doing is arguing that games are useful and they're good for us. And in some ways, I think that's disrespectful to the spirit of play, which play doesn't exist so that it can be useful. I think often that play is not a good citizen. And what do I mean by that? I think play often wants to sort of jump the rails and say, well, we can use this lamp as a baseball bat if we need to. And the way kids play, the way we play, the way even something like Candy Crush, where it's like, well, I can take up some of your office time in which the boss is paying you and I could use it to work on Candy Crush. Play is often disruptive. And I think it's good for us that it has this impish spirit that doesn't want to be useful or educational. I mean, play can be all those things. And I think it also has often, or maybe always, I would even argue, it has a spirit also of impishness that comes along with it. I mean, I think the way music changes, the way literature changes, which is like, there's always this, well, that's the way that sounded, but I want to add in this, what, a minor, or I want to add in a weird silence, or I want to do something new that's not radically new, but a little bit new so that you can recognize that I'm different than those other composers. When you reach a lot of people, you can make a lot of money. And when you have a lot of money, you can do more interesting, creative things. So when you're the John Philip Sousa band, you can get the best musicians in the world to come play in your band. So when you're Lucas Cantor, I can get some of the best musicians in the world to come play for me once. I can't get them to go on tour with me. If you look at the world of professional music as a game, the object is to make the best music possible. And the striving play that you would engage in would be to make the most money you can so that you can afford to hire the best musicians. Yeah, that's exactly it. Money is the ends and the, it's a temporary end. So you can have this means, which is even better players, always better players. I think it's true in theater, too. Like the same thing you said, oh, we can get some great performers, but they'll just do the New York show. They won't do a big tour and they won't give us a whole year of their lives for lots of reasons. But that moment when you have all the best performers, you're like, this is really good. It's never going to be this good again. Well, you know, he talks about striving play as the idea that your goal is something other than what your stated objective is. And I think that the author's goal in this book is to lay out that thesis in a way that makes some sense to a reader and to sort of prove his thesis. But the profession he's chosen, I think the profession of philosophy and to present philosophy in this way is literally the exact opposite of that idea. Because the way that this book reads is it's, as you said, it's very inside baseball, it's very technical, and it is completely inaccessible 
we're both, I'd say, fairly sophisticated readers. It is barely accessible to me, and it is completely inaccessible to someone who is not interested in philosophy. And so his goal of communicating his ideas to the largest number of people is subsumed by the way he's chosen to communicate them. Oh, I couldn't agree more. And I think in the same way of like a Fitbit steel values, he talks about it a little bit in there of like there's ways that tenure committees and universities now can rank like where you got published and how much that's worth and how many times you get cited. And I think that same valuation has driven him toward a kind of academic writing that's inaccessible that probably has some sort of point system that he values in some way, but may harm. I was going to point out, I've read this other book that he keeps mentioning. It's called The Grasshopper, based on the metaphor of the ant and the grasshopper, and the ant stores up its food for the winter, and the grasshopper just plays. And this book is written as like a dialogue, and it's really playful, like inside itself. I mean, this guy's a philosopher, but it's funny that this book is such a great inspiration for him, and formally he could not be further away from the joy and silliness and playfulness. I mean, this really is like a Socratic dialogue. I guess I could have just picked my favorite book, and we could sit here and talk about it. But it seems more fun for me to read a new book. No, this has been great. And it's interesting that I think this is part of the problem of contemporary philosophy is that I don't know if it's even contemporary philosophy. I think this idea has been around for a while. But part of the problem is that the idea of philosophy, the goal of philosophy is to illuminate ideas for all of mankind. And if you're in your ivory tower speaking language that only your colleagues understand, it's really not possible for that to happen. I think it's like a puritanical idea that something has to be difficult in order for it to be worthwhile. One of the things I learned when I started reading the Western canon and all the classic books is that all of the classic books that have stood the test of time are great. They're not hard. Some of them are hard to read because they're from another time, but they are fascinating. And all of them to a letter are, I mean, Middlemarch is a sort of paragon of a difficult book to read. It'll suck you in like a sitcom. It's amazing. I feel like if I had known how much fun War and Peace was, I would have read War and Peace when I was a kid. I put off reading War and Peace for forever. And then I think I was going to do like a book review of a new translation. And then I was like, oh my God, now I have to read two because I have to read the other translation to be able to compare it. But as soon as I started turning the pages, I was like, oh my God, it's just a page turner. It's a thriller and a romance. And I agree so much of like, Great music, great literature. When you really get into it, you're like, oh my God, this just works. And then it stands the test of time because it works. Yeah. Here's a loaded question for you, because we're getting a little bit into the idea that things that are popular tend to also be good and also stand the test of time. The idea that the Greek plays that we still have are the ones that won all the awards and that award winners are the ones that tend to sort of take all of the oxygen. So I'm going to go a little bit of a direction to get there. But I think one of the reasons we like play and play games is we like to feel this feeling of community. And a lot of times, one of the ways you can feel community is by saying who's not in our community. And so I think it can feel really cool to be like, I like this, you know, a lot of the punk music that I like, because you find it distasteful, you have to stay away from it. And then our group can stay close and we can be like, yeah, they don't get it. So I think there's a kind of bonding. I think it's just a part of it, but I think that's an important part. I am a Buddhist, but I was raised as a Baptist. And so I know all these Bible verses. There's an interesting thing in the New Testament where Christ talks about why he speaks in parables. And it is not so that the greatest number of people can understand these stories. It's in fact the opposite. He says, it's so that I can hide the mysteries and the wrong ones won't be saved. I think maybe through training, I've developed a kind of Catholic taste. I think I can like everything, Catholic in the universal sense. I like liking things. And so I find a way to like things, especially when I find something strange. I often want to go farther into it. 
And so I think it's a kind of discipline to try and like things and figure out why we like things. Does this move art forward? Is this a type of play? I do think it's a kind of play where you're like, well, I need to make room for myself. The meanest of me, you know, my sister doesn't always work. When she does work, she works at an Amazon fulfillment center. That's a place that has been gamified. What I'm trying to get to is that my job at the University of Texas and as a writer really values high value on the spectrum of the meanest of me. I get to say anything I want. The way I think is very valuable to them. If I could just teach freshman comp from a book and I never included any of my own thought, I'd probably be fired from a major research one university. The idea that I'm teaching something that I'm trying to create a new way to teach playwriting, a new thought about what plays are, a new thought about just playfulness itself is what I'm valued for. Whereas my sister, she thinks like, oh, I could do something different. I'm going to change up the structures of how we work here because I have this idea. She'll be fired instantly. She's like a human robot, basically. And so I think the indie rock, the strangeness, you know, reverb is a mistake. And then it becomes a like, no, it turns out we like it quite a bit. We should have a lot of it. Feedback, terrible, certainly a mistake. And then it becomes vogue for, you know, it's like, no, let's have some feedback. Feedback's kind of cool. I think there are a lot of things like that. Somebody's pushing the edge and then it turns out that like, that's really great. I mean, a lot of the like looping and sampling and repetitions and skipping comes from a sort of mistake. And then you're like, that skipping record makes a pretty good beat. We could use that in a way. So yes, I do think it pushes things forward. I think the premise of a marriage or a family or a community is that this is not for everybody. There are things my wife and I do with each other and know about each other that's not for anybody else. Then we can expand that out to my kids and the way we play and then my community. We're not trying to be all things to all people. We're trying to be for each other. And then I think there are things that we're like, well, the way we vote or our values are meant to be international or national and just different things belong on different levels. I want to relate it back. You know, I listen to a lot of mostly punk music. I listen to a fair amount of strange rap, but one of the most important essays I ever read in my life was by Charles Rosen, the great classical music scholar and critic. And he wrote an essay called who's afraid of the avant-garde. And in it, he basically argues you could learn to like everything your taste is a kind of education. And you can just tell yourself, I want to learn to like that. And Enity has this great quote. He quotes Goethe as saying, admirers are never wrong. And I think that's such a radical statement that when you see somebody trying to think of something I don't really like all that much. I mean, I don't like a lot of soft jazz, so I don't like a lot of like Yanni. But the people who like Yanni are right. They're not idiots who misunderstand what they're hearing. They like him because they like him. And I could learn to like him as well. I think that's such a radical statement. And I think it invites you into popular art where you go, man, the people that are excited about BTS, they are right. They're super excited. This must be great. Can I find my way into their enjoyment? And the people who like a noise band like Matamoros, you're like, they also are right. And I could find my way into their pleasure. And in the end, you can find yourself sort of like, oh, I just like more things. It turns out I'm happier than most people. The idea of agency being art, there's rules to any art. Playwriting is a craft and music is certainly a craft in its own way. But what these things really are, are abstractions. I mean, a play is an abstraction of reality. Music is an abstraction of an abstraction of an abstraction. It's several layers of abstraction deep. And the human mind craves rules or needs rules in order to understand these abstractions. When you begin to study one of these things, it's very easy to get absorbed in the rules and forget who you are and forget why you're doing it, which I think is maybe what happens in modern philosophy to some degree. But in order to make something enduring, you kind of have to make your own rules. The art is 
how much do I change where my audience is still going to understand what I'm doing? And in some cases, you can change everything except for one thing, and it will totally work. And in some cases, absolutely everything has to be the same and you can only change one thing. It's really hard to find that balance as an artist. And I think it's so impossible to find that I don't think anyone really knows what it is. I think you find it by accident. I absolutely agree. One of my mental wrestling matches during reading this was thinking about games versus play. And he has this Susian definition of games, which are voluntary attempt to overcome unnecessary obstacles. And that's great for games. But then games are only a small subset of the larger like spirit of play. And that play often is non-directed. You know, if you imagine just like playing make believe or just playing music, it's non-directed in this way that play as this enlivening of tensions, the tension makes it sort of alive. Good tension makes you feel alive. When you're courting somebody, there's that tension of, I get the sense that they're into me. I don't know how into me. And so we're trying to play this you know, I'm going to flirt and be available, but I can't be too available. Or then I see clingy or like, you know, there's just an aliveness to it. That's so much fun. And I think the same thing, you know, how fast can I play this piece of music and show my technical ability and how appropriate is that to like communicating with the audience? Like what's the right balance between speed and technical virtuosity and emotion or feeling. And I think in like prose, it's like how many delightful phrases and words and interesting metaphors can I put inside a story that is just really well made and just functions as a story. And that tension when you get the right balance is like, oh, yeah, that works. Yeah, I really feel that in my writing, because it usually starts with like, too dry, and then just way too much reverb. And then, yeah, okay, yeah, now yeah, just yeah, enough. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> But that's interesting. You know, I think gamification, we talked about this earlier, but it seems like gamification, the term gamification does actually the opposite of what it seems to do. It turns something that is a game into a numerical abstraction. You could make the argument that baseball has been gamified with all these statistics, which some people think makes baseball bloodless. I think actually it's fantastic and beautiful, but it's a completely different game. Baseball used to be you try to hit the ball with the bat and you throw the best people who are good at it out there and you see what happens. Now it's we know this pitcher and this batter are going to have this outcome this percentage of the time. So it's time to pinch hit. But that's a different game. I think that's also a beautiful game. Yeah, and games should change and evolve over time, especially around new technologies. Do we want a perfect game this decade? We have only a few more days where we'll be a decade without a perfect game. And then you have these games, was it Kershaw at the beginning of the season that was throwing a perfect game? And they were like, well, the analytics tell us that we should probably pull in because at a certain point, I mean, you're right. It's an interesting game. I'm interested in the conversation. I think it's fun. I don't think there's a right answer. I think there's an aliveness to that feeling of like, well, what would you do and why would you do it? And that creates that tension that feels playful. You know, he references one of the things that games are most like things like urban design and traffic planning. And it made me think back to like, oh, yeah, I don't particularly enjoy driving. But when I first got a car, I thought it was the greatest thing in the world. And I was really like my playful spirit was alive in having a car when I was first driving. And then you lose that. How could I bring that back? My wife is great at, she seems to never go the same route to any one place in the city because she likes going different directions and finding new things. And I think that's admirable in a way that is fantastic. You wouldn't want to live every moment of your life in a sort of novel and new way. And yet, yeah, it's not quite gamification. It's just like being alive in the moment. And how can you bring that tension back of like, driving is cool. It certainly is to a 16-year-old. 
can I ever get that feeling back? So Kirk, let me ask you the last question that we ask everybody, which is to recommend two books to our audience. I would recommend, has anybody ever recommended All My Puny Sorrows by Miriam Taves? Not yet. A Canadian writer. It is at once the saddest book and the funniest book you will ever read in your entire life. I mean, it deals with pretty hairy topics. It's two sisters, one of which is repeatedly depressive, has depressive episodes and occasionally attempts suicide. And the other, the main character, her sister has to upend her life and go move back in with her sister and get her back on her feet. And then once she does, she goes back to her kids. And the title, which is such a great title, All My Puny Sorrows, is actually from a Coleridge poem. You wouldn't think it comes from classical literature, but it does. As depressing as that sounds, there's a moment where I was just like, this is the funniest. She's with a friend in her hometown and they're watching Shrek. They're getting their kids to watch Shrek and they're smoking a joint on the front porch. And when their kids come out to bother them, they flick the joint out in the yard. They act like they're totally straight and normal. And when the kids go back in to watch Shrek, they run out to the yard and they look for the burning ember of their joint. And at that point, I was like, I just want to be with this main character. Anything she has to do is really interesting and beautiful. And I wept openly and also just laughed my ass off. It was so great. And then, oh, a book I'm rereading right now that I really love is called Grand Strategy, written by John Lewis Gaddis, who taught a master class at Yale. He really is a historian of the Cold War and wrote mostly about the Cold War and studied the Cold War in his life. But he also sometimes was a military instructor at West Point. And this book is in some ways a history of the world. And he keeps focusing on little moments like the Peloponnesian War or Lincoln. And it sort of moves through all of Western history. And in some ways, all he's arguing is it's important to have a plasticity of a mind, to be able to hold two contradictory thoughts at the same time, the F. Scott Fitzgerald definition of genius. And the, the central example is that Lincoln has this brain where he can both say, like, I want God on my side, but I need Kentucky. And so he can have this brain that says, like, I know that Kentucky is a slave state and they are sinful and they are terrible, but I will lose the war if I lose Kentucky. And leaders who can pivot back and forth in this terrible and complex way have a sort of strategic advantage. It's a wonderful, it's an interesting read for sure. That sounds fantastic. Cool. Well, Kirk, thanks so much. I'm going to have to find an excuse to be in Austin so me and you and Carrie can hang out one of these days. Yeah, yeah, let's all get together. Yeah, sounds great. My guest next week is Charles Harper Webb. He has been called Southern California's most inventive and accessible poet. And I believe he is. We're going to be talking about Fool's Crow by James Welsh, which is an amazing book. If you are the type of listener who likes to read along with the podcast, Fool's Crow by James Welsh. Buy it right now. Read it. It's one of the greatest books I've ever read. It is fantastic. It is amazing. I think I've been sufficiently effusive about it. If you like this podcast, please rate and review it. It's very important. It really helps the show out. So if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, scroll down to the section where it says rate and review. Hopefully you're going to select five stars and maybe write us a nice review. Or if you don't like the podcast, write us a bad review. That's fine too. The Book Society podcast is produced by me, Lucas Cantor, and Santiago Ramones, who does all the editing and is really great at it. He has a podcast called Bit Depth, which is really good too. The best way to find out about Book Society is to go to the Book Society website, booksocietypod.com. Get on the mailing list. I'm going to send out a newsletter. Driving is cool. It certainly is to a 16-year-old. Can I ever get that feeling back? I think it's cool to anyone who doesn't realize how environmentally destructive and personally dangerous it is. <laughs> That's the issue for me.
Yeah. Which then that makes me smile again. Like the fact that it's so fucking dangerous is part of its allure. It's fantastic. It's so American. Yeah.